When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Age of Radio. You are listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone everywhere. Welcome to Texas History Lessons. I'm Michael. We're back again to continue looking at Controversy in the state of Texas regarding its history, differences of opinion regarding history, and the lawsuit that is currently pending at the time of recording regarding this Texas State Historical Association lawsuit. Now, in the last episode, I covered a lot of ground. I'm sorry for the length of it, but it was intended originally to include the stuff in this episode, so it would have been a lot longer. So hopefully we'll try to get through it, all the relevant parts that uh, I wanted to include. Now, in the last episode, I tried to present as much as possible one, I guess you'd call it the side or point of view or perspective of what's going on and with some interjections and some questions and some some added comments and things and speculation and things like that. Now, in the course of doing this, I reached out to a lot of people. I tried to contact several board members, as many as I could find contact information from, and a lot of them replied. And I also reached out to a lot of other people for their thoughts. And a lot of people responded, but a lot of people didn't want to be quoted publicly. So I'm going to respect that and respect their wishes and just carry on with what information I am able to share. Now, among the people that did reply, Dr. Bunker did reply. As I mentioned earlier in the last episode, I have read some, but not all of his work, of course. And I do admire his scholarly work. And in his response, he told me that he was glad that I used his work as, quote, I have always tried to be clear, inclusive, honest, and accurate. Evidently, that does not please some, end quote. And I appreciate him writing back to me. First of all, the qualities he mentions, inclusivity, honesty, accuracy, they are the core standards that should be desired and applied to the study of history. And he also provided me with a more detailed statement that he had already pre-prepared for inquiries regarding it. I'm going to share part of that. Dr. Bunger wrote, I am surprised by the ruling of the judge to go to trial, disappointed that we cannot get a quicker decision and fearful of the implications of this outcome for the future of the Texas State Historical Association. He said that I have been a member of the Texas State Historical Association for almost 50 years, and I have observed many non-academic board members and officers who have some scholarly credentials. Within the last 15 years, two non-academic presidents of the TSHA have written books, held graduate degrees, and taught occasional classes as adjuncts, 
no one objected to their classification as non-academics. Instead, it was widely understood that an academic board member and an officer typically held a Ph.D., taught and conducted research at a university or college and considered themselves and were regarded by others as professional historians. That anyone would give credence to a novel and unsubstantiated theory to the contrary is surprising. By extending the restraining order forbidding the TSHA board from meeting before September 11th, the court has prevented the board from carrying out its fiduciary duties and normal oversight responsibilities. These are not idle concerns, especially since it leaves the day-to-day operation of the TSHA largely in the hands of an interim executive director with no experience in managing a nonprofit of the size and complexity of the TSHA. The board, the TSHA, and the people of Texas are ill-served by extending this restraining order to September 11th. Dr. Bunger continued with, This situation threatens the future of the TSHA by risking that unchecked by an observant board the interim executive director will allow the TSHA to drift from its stated mission. It also risks alienating the large body of members whose volunteer efforts provide content for TSHA publications, staff committees, and enable the holding of a successful annual meeting. To those who do the actual work of the TSHA, the interim executive director is not only authoritarian, he promotes an approach to Texas history that excludes large swaths of the people who lived in the region and elevates mythology, legend, and ideology over honesty and accuracy. Those who do the work of the TSHA rightly regard this approach as un-Texan. Walter L. Bunger Dr. Bunger has also been quoted in the Texas Observer as saying, At the heart of all this... It's about history. What is good history and what is not good history? Good history is about assigning dignity to all groups with accuracy and honesty. He added, you don't need to be afraid of certain things in the past if it happened. Get it out there. If lynchings happened in Texas, it doesn't have to be the only thing out there, but it also doesn't have to be buried. Honesty is central to history. I agree with these statements that he shared. I don't know many people, some of the people I know on the other side of the disagreement, I don't think they would uh, disagree with that last statement, especially. Honesty is central to history. Another issue the Texas Observer article brought up that has occurred to me about being at the heart of the problems is the difference between memory and history. Quote, Bunger said that J.P. Bryan wants to preserve personal memory rather than history. He points out that memories can be as much about what is forgotten as w- about what is remembered. If you forget systemic racism or the role of women in the past, for example, if you forget those things so you can have a sort of happy history where everybody came together to build Texas, Dr. Bunger said, That leaves out as much as it includes, but honesty and accuracy demand that you include everything, not leave it out, not forget it. I agree 100% with that statement as well. The distrust 
that's apparent for academic historians is strong. For some who support Mr. Bryan's actions, academic historians' attempt to control a board is a serious problem. One, Mr. Mark Pusateri, explained that an article on the controversy that appeared in Texas Monthly did an admirable job of presenting both sides, which is what I'm trying to do with these two episodes. And I'm also trying to show that there sometimes are some similarities and agreement that could be reached. He added that he wished the author could teach that objectivity to the cohort of academics who currently hold power. He added that the suit was pretty simple, restoring balance on the board, but the array of potential outcomes, if it failed, were complex. For the academics to be left unchecked, the argument goes, would be a disaster. Critics of the academics assert that they have been attempting to mold the organization to their own purpose, despite being only 10% of the membership. The people that support the suit and Mr. Bryan believe that it was the academic cohort that was clearly guilty of defying the bylaws of the association and that for academic historians, history is a secondary interest. The first is his or her career and its furtherance. Historian Benjamin H. Johnson told me, When it comes to approaches to history, I'm a big tent guy. I like good military history, good elite political history, good gender studies, good economic history, good social history. He went on to say that he valued the TSHA for being a big tent at its conferences and publications over the years. He and others described the lawsuit against Baker Jones as, quote, only the largest sign of a prolonged, personally vicious attack on her and people like Walter Bunker, who, as chief historian, has overseen the quarterly and handbook and done huge work for the TSHA for years before that. Now, when it comes to challenges and criticisms of academic historians in projects like Refuse to Forget, Johnson wrote, I'm all for critiques and learning from others, but this is just viciousness and gives you a sense of how nasty things are in the TSHA front. Johnson agreed with me that classic Texas history is compelling and important, but was concerned with what he described as, quote, contempt for other subjects and interpretations. He added that, quote, it must be exhausting to be angry all the time. One thing is very clear to me after months of trying to understand both sides. It seems that there is a lot more to this disagreement than which interpretation of history is correct. One side insists repeatedly that the issue of balance is the only goal and only purpose they're trying to fix. Many of their opponents insist that the goal is much more sinister. As one person, say their name, told me there's so much more to this than the injunction. Others, including Mr. Pusateri, Michelle Haas, and like I said, some other people that didn't want to be quoted, disagree rather than accuse one side of or another of being deceitful. Perhaps there really is a disconnect in communication and understanding. The divide is so strong and the culture of distrust is so great that perhaps there can be no resolution. We'll see, but I hope there can be. Now, Ben Johnson, who I've mentioned a couple of times, he was one of the initial signers of the petition requesting that the lawsuit against Baker Jones be dropped. Hundreds 
including seven who have served as president of the TSHA, and scores who have done other major service for the association, signed a petition calling on Brian to desist from this lawsuit. Johnson's also written that at the first hearing on Monday, May 22nd in the Galveston court where Brian filed the suit, Mr. Brian's attorneys declined to agree to the suggested postponement proposed by Jones's counsel on the grounds of her suffering from COVID at the time and the attendant brain fog and fatigue associated with that. Baker Jones's court filing suggested that Brian and his allies had ignored every bylaw or board action that they didn't like, but say they are fighting for this bylaw because it's in their interest. One point that seems to be of importance is Mr. Brian's role as executive director. His critics repeatedly stressed that he was serving only as interim director and that his appointment by the board was intended to be temporary, but he began presenting himself as the permanent executive director. The action at the meeting which Mr. Brian received an injunction to stop, according to Mr. Brian's own email, does appear to have been to remove the position altogether. One example that Dr. Johnson's shared is that when the TSHA board voted to approve the American Association of University Professors Statement on Academic Freedom, which is a central document for higher education and intellectual freedom, Mr. Bryan refused to update the association website accordingly. Another act that Bryan's critics point out was his dismissal of a staff member who happens to be the author of some handbook articles that have helped uh, Johnson's research and others without discussing the act with the president or the chief historian. According to Johnson, when Jones attempted to gather the board's executive committee to discuss these actions, Brian and two allies refused to consent to a remote meeting, thereby precluding the gathering, which led to President Jones's scheduling of the May 1st board meeting, which was halted minutes after the scheduled start time. Critics of Mr. Bryan claimed that even though he brought the suit in the name of the TSHA, he actually had no authorization from the board to do so. Since J.P. Bryan's legal action, the duly constituted board and new president voted in at the business meeting earlier this year have been precluded from doing their jobs. Now, descriptions of what is going on in the association debacle are mixed, the headline of a May 15th article of the Texas Observer by Josephine Lee, and I know some people point out this is not the most unbiased article, and it's not. And the title of that article is Those Who Don't Know the Past, The Outcome of a Fight to Control a Nonprofit Group Could Shape the Teaching of History in Texas. Lee began the article in this way, by starting with the meeting in uh, March 2023 and describing how the annual meeting program book has a poem included in it by executive director J.P. Bryan and she also likes to point out in the article that it's uh, he's also a former CEO of a multi-million dollar energy company now the poem is said to be by English writer J. Fairfax Blakeborough and Lee writes that it reads as a declaration of war to many Texas historians and then goes through the importance and long-storied history of the association. 
and said that the association has become the latest front in conservatives' quest to control the teaching of Texas history. In a message in that same program, Lee says that Brian pretty much stated the same in the program, vowing to ensure that the horror he sees as being depicted in the poem does not become reality in the teaching of Texas history. Now, I've shared some quotes from a couple of years ago and before that about Mr. Bryan's fears and, and his value of Texas history as he sees it there. So this is not a new thing that he just came up with. In the welcome letter, in the guide, the words of the poem that Brian shared are these. When a land forgets its legends, sees but falsehoods in the past. When a nation views its sires in the light of fools and liars, to the sign of its decline and its glories cannot last. Branches that blight their roots yield no sap for lasting fruit. And following the poem, Brian stated that his goal was, quote, to see that the above statement of possibility does not become a reality in the teaching of Texas history. And for Mr. Brian, it seems that this is a key element in what he's doing based on his own statements. He sees the negativity and the villainization of Texas heroes as an extreme negative for the future of Texas history. Brian tried unsuccessfully, as I've already explained, at the TSHA annual conference back in March to get his own candidate elected to the organization's board. And then, according to this article in The Observer, they write, In April, in a bizarrely worded filing, he sued the TSHA president to keep the board from holding a meeting at which he expected to be fired. And as we've explained, he won a temporary restraining order to delay the meeting based on the allegation that the board's current makeup is too heavily weighted towards academics in violation of its bylaws. Brian himself told the Galveston County Daily News how this fight plays out will determine the future of the way the history of Texas is written. And Lee also talks about in the article about how several TSHA members said that they feel they're being bullied and that their jobs are in danger if they speak up. Now, I don't know if these are people that are, it doesn't say employees, it says members. So I'm assuming this is statements being collected from academic historians and that they are somehow in fear of losing their jobs if they speak out against Brian's actions. Brian told the Galveston newspaper that professional historians on the board want to, quote, demean the Anglo efforts in settling the western part of the United States for the purpose of spreading freedoms for all. Lee also quoted Ben Johnson, who is a uh, professor of history at Loyola University now and uh, a former TSHA board member. He told me that he does miss teaching Texas history, but it's not really in high demand up in Chicago. And regarding some of these statements, Johnson said that is a fairy tale. The idea that you're going to make a historical organization tell only stories that are consistent with that kind of thinking, that is the death knell for any serious history. The sense of distrust between all involved is real, and it is serious. In an interview following the legal action, Brian made a point to criticize the TSHA chief historian Walter Bunger for the statement I went over in the last episode, the 2021 statement on the use of the Alamo to, quote, commemorate whiteness, and that it became 
in some ways a sort of symbol of Anglo-Saxon preeminence. People I've communicated with agree that everyone is entitled to their own opinions and beliefs. Some suggest that Mr. Bryan's error is in, quote, in treating the study of history as a matter of faith rather than inquiry. Ben Johnson also wrote, Bunger and other historians do not believe things about the Alamo or the West. They seek to prove arguments with evidence. And while I support Mr. Bryan's right to share his views about history, I do think there might be something true about this statement. There is not, it's not a matter of belief. But as we're going to see, people that are not necessarily supportive of Dr. Bunger also sometimes act on matters of belief or have an agenda. Now, there are some some things that I've been told about Dr. Bunger and some other historians about how they believe other things that can be also pretty controversial. One example someone shared with me was regarding Dr. Rick McCaslin, who is a TSHA fellow and a life member. And he was told by a couple of historians that he was the wrong kind of person to be president of the TSHA. He was told this by two white professors who had already been president. And Dr. McCaslin has written a book on the history of the TSHA and has been been devoted to the association for his entire career. But let's look closer at what is being said by those that oppose Mr. Bryan and the, quote, traditionalist goals. In July, an email was sent out from a group called Protect TSHA. And in the subject line, it said 10 former TSHA presidents call on TSHA member members to resist Bryan's effort to remake the organization. And this was accompanied with an open letter signed by 10 former presidents that was going to be released. And the organ- people that signed this, uh, they all encouraged people to read the email and read the letter and circulate it to your colleagues in the TSHA and profession more generally to call attention to it on social media accounts and to link to it in comments on TSHA social media posts to get the word out, basically. And they wanted this because the volunteer executive director, alluding to Mr. Bryan, is using TSHA's email list to circulate his views of this subject without making it available to those who see matters differently, who, quote, we believe constitute a heavy majority of the organization's active members. Now, this was signed by Kent Calder, who has more than 25 years of experience managing publishing programs in nonprofit, scholarly and educational realms. He's served as managing editor of Traces of Indiana and Midwestern History and has also been managing editor of the Southwestern Historical Quarterly, among other things during his career. Sonia Hernandez, a native of the Rio Grande Valley who has a Ph.D. from the University of Houston back in 2006, also signed it. She specializes in the intersections of gender and labor in the United States-Mexican borderlands, Chicana-Chicano history in modern Mexico, and is also a co-founding member of the American Historical Association and the WHA award-winning public history project, Refusing to Forget. And she's got a number number of uh, publications. 
Benjamin Johnson, who has been heavily quoted throughout this episode, has a lengthy career and is author of Revolution in Texas, How a Forgotten Rebellion and Its Bloody Suppression Turned Mexicans into Americans, and another book called Border Town, The Odyssey of an American Place. He also focuses on environmental history, North American borders, and has focused on Texas history and Western history, and has published widely. Brandice Nelson, who has been heart of Texas Regional History Fair coordinator and a map curator, with a Bachelor of Arts in History and Master of Arts in Museum Studies from Baylor University, signed this. Independent scholar Gary Pinkerton signed. Rebecca Sharpless, who has been an assistant professor in the Department of History at TCU, Texas Christian University, and the author of books such as Fertile Ground, Narrow Choices, Women on Texas Cotton Farms, and Cooking in Other Women's Kitchens, Domestic Workers in the South, 1865 to 1960. Scott Sosby, who is one of the co-hosts of a great podcast, as bad as some people are saying academic historians are, if you want to hear a couple, he and uh, uh, Greg Proust do Talking Texas, and it's two academic historians talking about Texas history, and it's a great podcast. He's a teacher of uh, U.S. History and History of Texas, holds a Ph.D. from Texas Tech University, and has been involved as executive director and editor for the East Texas Historical Association. Eddie Weller, who's been a professor at San Jacinto College South, also signed it. And following their signatures, you get a open letter to all members of the Texas State Historical Association. And I'm going to read from it. I probably won't read all of it, but I want you to get the gist of what they're trying to say. I shared what Mr. Brian shared. I'll share what their counterpoints are. Now, they begin by saying, by now, you have probably read in the press about J.P. Bryan's lawsuit and injunction against the TSHA board and its president, Nancy Baker Jones. For those of you who have not followed the situation closely back in October with the association facing financial headwinds, Bryan offered his services as interim executive director, promising to apply his business acumen and fundraising prowess to improving the organization's financial situation. The board accepted his generous offer. Over the ensuing months, however, Brian clashed with Chief Historian Walter Bunger, the board, and the president, all of whom expected Brian to observe the bylaws, which reserve certain powers for the chief historian and require oversight by the board. After the March annual meeting, Brian filed his suit seeking to replace the democratically elected board with a new or enlarged board to be controlled by his own hand-picked candidates, an act which, if successful, will constitute a hostile takeover of the TSHA. And I got to tell you, if I'm not going to be saying TSHA that much after these couple of episodes. It is easier, I guess, than saying Texas State Historical Association every time, but I, let me get back to it. The letter continues. In his suit, Brian charges that the board is in violation of the organization's bylaws, which state that the board must be balanced substantially between academic and non-academic members. Brian then applies his own idiosyncratic method of counting who is or is not an academic, a count that contradicts the bylaws and the traditions of the TSHA and ignores the judgment of the several nominating committees themselves composed of academics and non-academics. 
So even the committees are supposed to be apparently broken down pretty fairly. And it was these several nominating committees who nominated those board members for their respective slots. TSHA members familiar with the governance of the association know what the general practice has long been. Academics are full-time or retired history professors, generally with PhDs. Non-academics are everyone else. By this practice, the present board remains substantially balanced, although we recognize that there are some gray areas in the bylaws that could be clarified, such as how one counts a K-12 teacher, how one counts someone whose principal career was outside of academia, but who did some part-time college teaching, or how one counts an educational administrator. Over the TSHA's long history, nominating committees acting in good faith have sometimes classified such people as academics and sometimes as non-academics. Brian's injunction also prevents the board from meeting, disrupting the association's governance, and violating not only our bylaws, which require the board to meet, but also the rules and procedures governing nonprofits in Texas. The letter continues. Brian's complaint, however, is not really about the technical means by which the board's makeup has been determined. No, this is about politics and ideology. Brian, in a number of recent interviews, has echoed today's far-right-wing talking points, setting his sights on what he thinks is the out-of-control wokeness of the association. His appointment as interim executive director, then, has turned out to be a classic case of a Trojan horse, appointed to the TSHA staff under the guise of helping to improve the association's finances. He has instead made the TSHA the latest front in the culture wars, a development that few in the organization wanted and that threatens the very survival of the TSHA as we know it. He, the letter then goes on explaining how Mr. Bryan is a descendant of Stephen F. Austin's nephew, William J. Bryan, and recognize that he is a passionate devotee to Texas history. But they point out that he's a passionate devotee to a certain kind of Texas history. And they give the illustration that he typically begins speeches by proclaiming that Texas has the greatest history of any state. I played you a couple of clips last episode of him saying that. In recent interviews, uh, the letter says, Brian charged academic members of the TSHA board with promoting a narrative, quote, again, I'll say it again, that demeans the Anglo efforts in settling the western part of the United States for the purpose of spreading freedoms for all. Does Brian seriously contend that his pioneer great-great-grandfather settled on his Brazoria County plantation with his 38 slaves in order to secure freedoms for all? In that same interview, Brian cherry-picked selected quotes from Chief Historian Bunger, himself a fifth-generation Texan, to demonstrate Bunger's and other historians' alleged demonization of Texas heroes. And they share the quote that Brian said, If we keep on this path, we're going to lose it all. There's nothing inspiring when everyone's a villain or a crook or usurper of wealth. I don't just want a seat at the table. I want to make sure all who have different views, have a seat there too. Now, these former presidents continue by saying, for those of us who love Texas history and the TSHA, this is disheartening, especially coming from someone who has contributed much to our organization over time. 
They continue by saying, Brian may think that all the non-academic members of the TSHA share his disdain for the academics in the association, but he is wrong about that. Non-academics in the association enjoy the friendships of the professors and love learning about their work. Likewise, academics in the association have long taken pride in the fact that we are a Big Ten organization, and those of us who have been members for many years have made lifelong friends and sometimes have found scholarly collaborators in our non-academic fellow members. The pages of the TSHA's publications remain open to all whose work meets its scholarly standards. They then approach the issue of uh, TSHA publications. It is certainly true that TSHA publications often reflect current trends in the broader historical profession, including articles, presentations, and books devoted to various topics relating to race and gender. But contrary to Brian's claim that the TSHA only presents one side of Texas history, a quick look at the programs of the two most recent annual meetings reveals much that is traditional. In those meetings, one could hear presentations by academics and non-academics alike on screwworm eradication in West Texas, Texas state banks in Great, the Great Depression, Presidial life in 18th century Texas, the American legal system and the Plains Indian Wars, the legal origins of Sam Houston's 1833 draft constitution, Southern Plain folk migration to post-Reconstruction Texas, influenza and war in advertisement, the Texas Catholic Conference of Health Facilities, Christian Witness to Health Care Ministry, and more. And I'll add that you can still also check out John Willingham's investigation into several dozen articles that have been published in the last few years on the Southwestern Historical Quarterly and his conclusion that only about 30% could be considered what some consider controversial or just strictly focused on race and gender. Only about 30, 33%, something along those lines. They then share names of articles that have been included since 2020 and those include LaSalle's Texas Enterprise and Louis XIV Imperial America, explosions and fires at the ports of Texas City and Houston, and on and on. Recent books published by the TSHA Press include A Busy Week in Texas, Ulysses S. Grant's 1880 Visit to the Lone Star State, Inside the Texas Revolution, The Enigmatic Memoir of Herman Ehrenberg, Tejano Patriot, The Revolutionary Life of Jose Francisco Ruiz, Texas in World War One, and the Old Army in the Big Bend of Texas, the Last Cavalry Frontier, nineteen eleven to nineteen twenty one. The authors of this letter say this hardly qualifies as wokeness run amok, and it certainly refutes the claim that those who do traditional tropics have been denied a seat at the table. They also go on and say the problem with Brian's attack on academics and the TSHA is that it displays a fundamental misunderstanding of what the study of history is. When Brian complains that academics are guilty of demonizing Texas heroes, when he worries that academic history may fail to inspire readers, when he trumpets the greatness of Texas's history, he is criticizing scholars for doing or failing to do things that fall outside the purview of serious historians. The historian's task is to help us understand the events of the past by researching the facts however pleasant or unpleasant some may find those facts, and to offer informed interpretations about what the facts mean. And I agree with these statements here. And this next one, 
They write, it is not the job of the historian to glorify or demonize. I'm going to repeat that. It is not the job of the historian to glorify or demonize people in the past. Hero and villain are moral judgments, not historical interpretations. They then point out that recent legislation in Texas and elsewhere has sought to ban the teaching of history that might make students feel guilty about the past. A concern that Brian clearly shares. Somebody uh, made a comment on one of my episodes just uh, about a week ago about how I should stop uh, something along the lines that I shouldn't be promoting this white guilt version of history, which took me aback because I'm not doing that. I'm just sharing history and stories about history. And they continue. He has criticized the TSHA annual meeting for addressing emotionally painful topics. But of course, nobody can tell anyone else how they should feel, be it guilty or proud. It is not the job of the historian to inspire others, as Brian insists it should. If people read history and find inspiration or guilt or pain or pride there, that is up to them. Historical works that avow the greatness of a state or a historical figure is not really history at all. It's propaganda. Real history is complicated, they continue. Historians tell us that, once again, the most celebrated Tejano officer in the Texas Revolutionary Army fled the state in the 1840s and fought against the United States in the United States-Mexican War. One can decide whether or not he was a Texas hero. Sam Houston, a slave owner whose private life included three marriages and struggles with alcohol, defended the rights of Indians and fought against the secession of Texas in 1861. Acts which ultimately destroyed his political career and made him a traitor in the eyes of many of his contemporaries, but which historians have praised as politically courageous. Hero or villain? Prior to coming to Texas and dying at the Alamo, James Bowie made a fortune illegally smuggling slaves and peddling forged land titles. Can a proven con man also be a hero? William Joel Bryan, J.P. Bryan's wealthy slave-owning ancestor, later helped to finance the founding of Bryan, Texas, which was named in his honor. His legacy, like so many others, is complex. The point here is that it is not demonizing our state's heroes to tell their complete stories, warts and all. It's what historians do. When historians research such figures' lives and examine their motives, they are neither demonizing them nor celebrating them. They're just being historians. Scholars understand that historical figures cannot be judged by today's standards. And then they go on and address some other issues. J.P. Bryan recently said of professional historians, I don't like their history and I don't believe their history. It is certainly his right to disagree with the conclusions or to dislike the subject matter of any particular historian. But Bryan's statement is telling. According to him, all academic historians apparently march in lockstep with one another, using their scholarship to spread liberal propaganda. Yet anyone who has read much professional history or attended many professional conferences knows that academics vigorously disagree with one another on just about everything. Indeed, we understand that this is what academic history really is, ongoing arguments about the meaning of the past. Brian's idea that there are two sides to Texas history, a true patriotic one told mostly by non-professionals, which celebrates the past, and a false, unpatriotic one told by professional historians in order to vilify our heroes, is itself profoundly ahistorical. And they close out the letter by saying, 
it is also dangerous. History shows that the first thing authoritarian governments do when they come to power is shut down the archives, censor what is taught and written, and produce propaganda glorifying a mythical past that they promise to restore. For 126 years, the Texas State Historical Association has provided multiple platforms for serious historians of all ideological or methodological persuasions, be they professionals or non-professionals, to explore our state's astounding history. We call on all TSHA members to resist the current effort to fundamentally change the way the TSHA operates, to politicize it, and to remake it into a heritage group or, worse, a propaganda organ. As the old saying goes, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that was signed by Patrick Cox, who was the association president from 2021 to 2022. Emilio Zamora, who was president from 2019 to 2020. Paula Mitchell Marks, who was the president of the association from 2017 to 2018. Lynn Denton, who was president from 2015 to 2016. Greg Cantrell, who was president from 2013 to 2014. Merlene Petre, who was president from 2011 to 2012. Robert A. Wooster, who was president from 2005 to 2006. George N. Green, who served as president from 2003 to 2004. Jerry D. Thompson, who was president from 2001 to 2002. And Alwyn Barr, who was president of the association way back in 1992 to 1993. And I will say he has authored some great books, especially Black Texans, A History of African Americans in Texas, among others. And there, um, that's a lot to unpack here between the last episode and this one. You know, when I first heard about the lawsuit, I was, I was very concerned. To be honest, it saddened me. Yeah, I was dealing with some other stuff, but this hit me too this lawsuit appeared to be like a drastic and severe action that could push this divide too far to upset people too much to be able to have a reconciliation or a compromise so what i wanted to know was if there was any possibility for a civil resolution to this rift and what was its root cause discord and hostility is hard to overcome and it's bad for Texas history. I don't care if you agree with everything I say, because I admit that I might be getting something wrong or reading into something wrong, but I'm an optimist by nature, but I have a bad feeling about what's happening. It worries me. One academic historian I contacted agreed that quote, the, that the route of the lawsuit is drastic. They agreed with that part, but they said, I'm hopeful that the lawsuit is dismissed fairly quickly and that we lovers of Texas history can get back to focusing on what we love. That was from an academic historian. And it doesn't look like it's going to be dismissed. Another person assured me, and this is somebody I respect a great deal, assured and promised me essentially that the lawsuit was not about ideology. And I have no reason not to believe this person. I believe that they believe this but there's an article by fox news digital and the email sent out by the former tsha presidents also suggests that for jp Bryan, it is ideological 
The article said, Retired oil man and philanthropist J.P. Bryan, who became executive director of TSHA last year, told Fox News Digital there has always been a natural bifurcation between conservative and liberal for much of the organization's history. According to its bylaws, the board must comprise half academics and half non-academics. Per TSHA's bylaws, the board must be balanced, and we've been over this ad nauseum. And I agree, it needs to be balanced. The article then said that balance helped ensure that the subject matter was never overtly politicized and state objective. That is, until the past decade or so, when the organization began a gradual shift toward a more progressive, liberal narrative of Texas history. And it has the quote, A lot of us, Brian says, a lot of us who were non-academics were really worried about the financial wherewithal and were not necessarily looking at the content of our publications and other things we were disseminating. So we just assumed that we were always going along in our natural format, properly representing our traditional view that we have a great history made by exceptional people. Per Brian's account, academic board members started to emphasize marginalized groups and the plight of victims. Figures such as Stephen F. Austin, Sam Houston, and the Texas Rangers, once lauded as heroes in Texas history, had become villains. Brian is quoted as saying, My concern is that we are only writing one vernacular now, and it's that all our traditional heroes are villains of some sort. Dr. Jody Edward Ginn, or Jen, apologize if I get the name incorrect, who's a TSHA member, backed up this contention by telling Fox News Digital that other members started to refer to themselves as activist scholars. And he added, those are mutually exclusive concepts there. They just don't blend together because activists have an agenda and a narrative. Whether you believe it's right or wrong is irrelevant. An honest scholar cannot start with knowing how it's going to end. And there's something to be said to that, but we will talk about activist scholars in a later episode Jen has been a member of the association for over 20 years and said that he became a pariah for making the nomination of Wallace Jefferson, Texas's first black Supreme Court chief justice of Texas, to the board in the place of the leadership's preferred candidate, who is, quote, a white leftist activist scholar. He said Nancy Baker Jones herself, as incoming president, tried to stop in violation of the bylaws since Walter Bunger and Nancy Baker Jones and some of the other folks got on the board. They've started consolidating power. E Fox News Digital article also said that the board's ideological shift was cemented during the COVID-19 pandemic. That's when, according to Brian, the board, quote, under the cover of dark, started filling the non-academic seats with academics. And that's where the basis for the lawsuit that it is consisting of 12 academics and eight non-academics came from during this time period. Brian is also quoted as saying, I saw incredible changes, but the thing I found so distressing is that 90% of our membership, nothing that we're, we're doing would appeal to them, which is insane. And the 90%, the non-academics are 90% of our funding. So the academics contribute 1%, but they want to tell us what we are and what we're going to do. The article then shared that Brian, who's a veteran businessman, he implemented changes to help improve the organization's finances, something that in the meeting agenda 
they recognize and thank him for. And then it proceeds to go through everything I have covered in the last one and a half episodes now. And the article closes with, this is a fight. The next six months is going to determine the entire future of the way Texas history is taught in colleges across the state, according to Brian. Now, in the acknowledgments to his book, Gone to Texas, the late, great Randolph B. Campbell, some people refer to him as Mike Campbell, he wrote quite accurately, quote, a great many Texans love their state's history with a passion that keeps them ready to pounce on factual errors or questionable interpretations in the work of errant historians. Of course, there's often dispute as to what is factually correct and even more bitter disagreement over interpretive matters. No one who enters the thicket of Texas history will emerge unscathed, but those who call on their colleagues for advice and assistance are likely to have fewer scratches than those who do not. This is a very accurate statement made by Dr. Campbell and pretty much sets up the basis for the current controversies. As I said, there's a lot to unpack from all of this information. When it comes to the question of balance, I agree that it is important. Academics play a very significant role in preserving Texas history and pushing Texas history into unexplored areas. Without their work and dedication, it would be difficult for me to do this podcast because I rely so much on the work they've been doing for decades. Non-academics are also especially significant in the TSHA and the preservation and promotion of Texas history. Academics are dedicated and bring a scholarly ethic to studying history. That's what they should do. At times, some step out and broaden their identity as historians to be activists in current issues. Non-academics can still apply a scholarly work ethic themselves. And while many academics have a passion for their work, non-academics bring even more passion and excitement because of their love of Texas history. Not to say that academic historians don't have that. And to say that all academic historians are progressive leftists is also unrealistic. And in fact, this whole idea of left against right boggles my mind because I know enough about people on both sides that if you were to remove the left or remove the right, whatever is left is going to turn on itself and break apart into different fighting sections. For one group, it is something they probably love but also make a living doing. For the other, it is almost entirely out of love for the subject. Now, there are always going to be disagreements between the two sides, quote, sides. And there will always be disagreements within the people who are on the same side. While the issue of the TSHA board balance seems to be a simple issue, it would be hard to ignore the underlying noise being made in the background. And this is where things get interesting. All of the people involved in these disagreements that I've had contact with have an investment of time, interest and love for Texas history. And I'm talking about people that are categorized as being traditionalists and exceptionalists and people that are being pushed into this progressive leftist role. All of these issues, in my opinion, have a deeper connection to a division or controversy that goes back several decades. And we're going to get to that soon. Today, we have Brian and a lot of sympathetic people that argue that simply focusing on the negative, the evil side of our history will destroy Texas history. And I agree. 
if that is what everybody that is on the other side is doing, that would be something I would fight against. But I mentioned the podcast talk, Talking Texas that has two academic historians. I don't hear negative and promotion of villainization and evil when I listen to that podcast. Are there historians that do fit that description? Yeah, they, there are. And it's not a new thing. I can show you back activist historians that go back well into the early parts of the last the 20th century. And I might just do that. Activism in history is not new. If you've ever heard of Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who wrote a couple of the big biographies on Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy, he was definitely an activist historian. Others, presumably some academics, and from what I understand, some non-academics as well, argue that Brian and the traditionalists, as they are sometimes labeled, are attempting to deny the past and promote a generations-old narrative that is out to only celebrate the heroic narrative of Texas history. And guess what? Also destroy Texas history. My take is that while there might be some on both sides that are incapable of civil discourse and compromise, I do not believe that Texas history will be destroyed as long as we can put aside whatever demons drive us to disruption and come together to share debate and learn together. We will not agree on everything, but we can all agree that the subject is important and that we need to work together and make it interesting and available to all who might be even just a little bit interested and perhaps bring in more people to work and learn with us all. I think to categorize everybody that is classified as a traditionalist as only holding to a certain narrative, I, I think that's ignoring a big part. I think I've shared the evidence of that in the last episode. So I think we actually do need to have some real honest talk amongst without accusation and less assumption about what the goals of others is now the houston chronicle put out an editorial that when i read it i'm like wow that spot on they must have been they must have hacked into my laptop and got some of my notes because their feelings were a lot of what i've shared and that's a joke i don't really believe that i'm not a crazy person and in the editorial, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to pull out some select quotes. But it starts with Walter Bunger, one of the three central figures in this drama. And it says that when Walter Bunger wants to explain to someone what history is, he starts with a simple question. When was that fancy facade on the Alamo, that funny gay bull that looks like the top of an ornate chest of drawers constructed, and then they go on to say the building is iconic in Texas history and a near pilgrimage site for thousands of students who visit each year, famous for the 1836 battle during the Texas Revolution. But its familiar facade, that symbol that's almost associated with Texas itself, that facade wasn't built until more than a decade after the battle. And Bunger is quoted as saying, when the public thinks about the Alamo, they think about it with that facade being there. That's what passes in the minds of many for Texas history, something added onto after the fact. And I think that's a key point that he makes there. Editorial continues and says, there are the popular stories we tell about ourselves, often in the guise of history. That's the facade. It's real, but it's not always as it seems. If a history of the Alamo was written, according to Dr. Bunger, in the 1890s, that tells you about the 1890s. And that's good evidence for the 1890s, but it 
tells you nothing about the 1830s. It misleads you. This idea of history, the editorial says, that the way it's been told is imperfect and needs continual revision is at the heart of a battle in the courts for control of the Texas Historical Association. It then goes in with a summary about what the association is, its history, and they say that now the two sides are at war, but they need each other. The academic board members help breathe life into Texas history, unveiling new evidence, new storylines, new understandings of ourselves, and the lay people to bring their enthusiasm inside and often fundraising acumen. They all help spread the word of Texas history. The editorial then proceeds to describe the characters of the struggle as being colorful and as aggrandize figures as the figures they're arguing over. It mentions that uh, how J.P. Bryan Jr., he's often described uh, as as a billionaire oil man. And it quotes him as saying that it says that he laughed this off, telling the chronicle that he and his wife had given away most of the wealth that's come their way and it adds that he proudly traces his history and his ancestry all the way back to Stephen F. Austin's family he insists that what makes Texas great is an expansive enterprise and he says in the editorial it's not some exclusive narrative but Brian also argues that's not currently happening at the association the quote by him in the editorial is it's in our quarterly and in our symposiums, at our annual meetings, that we see the whole narrative dominated by villainization and victimization type of topics. Editorial then takes a good look at Dr. Bunger, who is the academic in the scenario, who is a fifth-generation Texan, and a self-described, quote, old-fashioned scholar dedicated to empirical research. And he's been criticized, as I've covered, by some for saying traditional history undergirds white supremacy. And, you know, his interest in the nuances of history come from his own experience with his Anglo and German family members. The editorial says they shared very different stories about the Civil War. And the editorial then says, protected by his endowed chair at the University of Texas and the prospect of retirement, he has become one of the most vocal historians sounding the alarm about Mr. Bryan. The legal issue... The editorial says is the board's composition always split between academics and non-academics and disagreement about a new board member that boiled down over at the association's annual meeting in March. We covered that pretty good. It also quotes Michelle Haas, who runs the Texas History Trust, and her saying that at that meeting, people were seriously standing up and yelling like it was the British freaking parliament. Editorial then goes on to share that at that meeting, when the new member was selected, the association's membership approved her as one of the non-academic members. And that's when it really got serious. Brian and others have objected and argued that the board isn't balanced. But the fight, the editorial points out, has been markedly personal. It writes that a court blocked a board vote to oust Brian he also sought personal damages between $250,000 million from the current board president, Nancy Baker Jones, for what court documents described as insulting, offensive, libelous, and slanderous remarks. The editorial also points out that in that agenda that was made that I read in the last episode for the May meeting that was not held because of Brian's legal actions, the document does 
share a thanks, a deep thanks and appreciation to Mr. Brian for the time and energy and knowledge and dedication and resources. Brian insists that 99% of funding comes from non-academics for only contributing 1% toward the future financial health of the organization. Academics get a 50% vote. And that's what this fight's about, according to the editorial and Mr. Brian. It also goes on to say there's only one narrative they want in the debate, quoting Mr. Brian. And he adds that I want to see both sides represented at the table. Both sides. Brian acknowledges there are far more than two perspectives on Texas history, but he still sometimes speaks in those terms. And the editorial says history must be far, far bigger than both. And speaking of controversy, the editorial also brings up something contributed by Raul Ramos, a history professor at the University of Houston who studies Texas history and has not been personally involved with the battle for control of the association, but he's a member that's followed it like I have. And he brought up another controversy, an 1897 controversy when Bay City lawmaker Alexander Hensley questioned whether the UT History Department adequately honored the traditions of Texas. That is pretty similar to what's going on now. The academics are not honoring the history of Texas. And even back then, people were voicing the same concerns. Ramos said there's a sense that there's a true Texas history that is a platonic ideal that exists out there somewhere and that it needs gatekeepers rather than a history that is always imperfect. The editorial has a lot of great content. It also mentions John Willingham's article in the Southwestern Historical Controversy on Forget the Alamo and how the book overstates the role that slavery played in the revolution, particularly in regard to the Battle of the Alamo. In that article, the editorial writes that Mr. Willingham argues that the cause is more complicated, but the slavery-affirming result is certainly clear enough. And it all goes on to say that Mr. Willingham, who has a master's degree in American history, but not a PhD, he's an example of the great range of people who publish in the quarterly, not all of whom are practicing academic researchers affiliated with a university. It also includes another quote by Dr. Ramos saying, we dedicated our professional lives to this. We care deeply about Texas history and the people of Texas As academics, we go into this to uphold scholarly rigor and values, but also to improve society because we feel like a society that is able to understand its past in a complex way is going to be a better society going forward. The editorial closes with the following statement, quote, we applaud Brian's dedication and philanthropy. He believes in Texas history. We believe the historian speaking out against his lawsuit, including via a petition asking him to rescind it, do as well. Both Brian and Bunger are past presidents and believe the organization is in peril for different reasons. While historians have given their professional lives to this work, Brian has also contributed. Opening the Brian Museum in Galveston, Brian told us that he views the lawsuit as a last resort, but we'd urge him to reconsider and for everyone involved to find a way to preserve the great work that the association does the sanctity of the academic process and scholarly journal as well as the high standards of its public facing handbook that has served as a guide for thousands of texans to better understand their home so now 
Now you know about as much as I do regarding all the matters going on that I've been covering here. And to reiterate, to be completely honest and transparent, I am pretty unplugged and not involved in these controversies aside from my attempts to dig into what is happening. I observe them from afar and I'm often puzzled. After a lot of observation, I do see a trend in the struggles. You know, for anyone listening to this far and waiting to see which side I'm on, who I'm going to support, am I going to come down hard on one side or hard on the other? We're going to keep waiting on that. When it comes to the culture wars or history wars, I'm close to being Switzerland, except for a couple of things that I will say. If I'm going to be involved in the fight at all, it will be against the history wars itself. Now, you might be wondering, why why am I saying that? I, I thought you said history was important. Yes. Yes, it is. And that's why I'm sorry to say I'm tired of hearing about the fighting, and I'm sure you're tired of hearing me talk about it. Jim Bob Moore is an author, and he wrote something on his substack, Texas to the World, that I agree with and strive to follow. I already had these ideas and beliefs for the most part, but he summarized it really well. And he wrote, My sense is that the greater part of our country's population is sympathetic to those who struggle with everything, from work to health and even sexuality. We don't want to fight. We want to fix and heal. I choose to believe that is the American instinct at this point in our history. Our political process is seeking unifiers with a unifying message. Leaders who communicate, not anger, but understanding, are those who will rise in our process. Don't make enemies, make friends, earn support, not disdain. And I appreciate those words. Now, I know I'm not a leader. Like I said, I'm just a guy out here that spends a lot of time on a tractor and feeding cows in the wintertime. But this is important. And quite a while back, a couple of friends I've made while doing the podcast contacted me about some things that had been going on for quite a long time. And that was the impetus to starting these episodes that I've been doing for a long time. One of them had been seeing a lot of information flying about uh, some of the hot topic issues like activist historians and critical race theory and the Alamo controversies and the 1836 project, etc. Melvin Edwards's take on it was that there are some people that, quote, understand that controlling the narrative of history will dictate a perceived pace of the future. It's all for the sake of their entitlement because they think they are the true legacy Texans. I think Melvin has a, a very interesting and thoughtful and good point of view here. And since I'm mentioning him and since I brought up critical race theory, I'd like to take a moment to share some excerpts he gave me permission to share from his excellent book, The Strength of a Thousand Sons. When all the yelling about CRT and diversity, inclusiveness and equity and everything began, I have to admit I was thrown off. I don't know anything about CRT, and I suspect that a lot of people yelling about it didn't either. I don't know much about DEI initiatives. I do know that Texas is diverse, and its history is equally diverse. I do know that everyone should be included, and everyone's history should be included. And I also know that everyone deserves to be given the opportunity for equitable opportunity, and that history should strive to be equitable in its composition. Now, Mr. Edwards is a great writer. He's a very thoughtful, sincere, and, like I said, thanking man that I respect a lot. With that in mind, and with the current fights over African-American history curriculums and more, I think 
the words he wrote in his book are a perfect summary of my stance and I think a lot of other people's. He writes in The Strength of a Thousand Sons, the term white privilege is one I've always hesitated to use because of how easy it is to misinterpret and misunderstand. Middle and lower class white people bristle at the notion that they were given monetary advantages they know didn't exist for them personally. However, the word privilege is more broadly defined than mere money and has relevance in a variety of sociological circumstances. The universal absence of Dubois' double consciousness and King's capacity to suffer are just two of those ways. White people have never had to look up from the bottom of society and subconsciously wonder if they deserve their station. That is an unconscious privilege for them. They've never had to wonder if being unarmed and pulled over for a routine traffic violation could end in violence. That, too, is privilege. It is an undeniable fact that being poor is a disadvantage for every race and every nation. However, being black and poor has been uniquely disadvantageous in this country. To demonstrate what I mean, let's create a journey for a fictitious character who I'll call John. John is born into slavery in 1847. His parents have never owned anything, so there's nothing for them to give John when he's born except life and natural trepidation. At the age of 18, he is emancipated on Juneteenth in Texas. He doesn't know how to read or write because one of the chains placed on enslaved black people was making sure they were denied an education that might ignite a desire for freedom, movement, and self-determination. Therefore, John grows into adulthood with no foundation for learning and has only known subservience since birth. He doesn't even know there could be more for him. What's worse, if he attempts to create a better life for himself, he's beaten back down by the new blunt club of Jim Crow. John has no way to move up, move out, or get around these laws. Later, he has children, and they repeat that cycle. It takes three more generations of John's family to even be able to cast a ballot to determine who will represent them in the city county, state, or federal government. John and his descendants are fictitious characters. These are not fictitious circumstances. In fact, they're so common among African Americans to have been the routine rather than the outlier. Slavery may have started out relatively small in Texas, but it grew to be a big business, a system of transactions, family separation, and forceful bondage. The Mexican government was opposed to slavery, but even so, there were 5,000 slaves in Texas by the time of the Texas Revolution in 1836. By the time of annexation a decade later, there were 30,000. By 1860, the census found 182,566 slaves, over 30% of the total population of the state, according to the Texas State Library. That's 182,566,000 human beings who were not listed in that 1860 census by name. They were listed as property. In this context, Samson grew up under the oppressive shadow of Jim Crow, just one generation removed from his parents' enslavement. His self-worth was as little as his financial worth, and his financial worth was as low as his prospects of self-improvement. The phrase, nowhere to go from here but up, didn't apply to him. He had nowhere to go, not even up. 
So he seemed determined to make sure everybody in his family stayed down with him. That family lived under the all-encompassing cruelty of Jim Crow and the abusive reign of Samson Edwards. That's a multi-generational and multi-dimensional tragedy. And he's Mr. Melvin E. Edwards is writing about his own family now. In the Jim Crow South for nearly 100 years, blacks and whites were forced to stay separated. They couldn't drink the same water, eat at the same restaurant, sleep in the same hotels, or even be buried in the same cemeteries. Life was starkly and literally black and white, and I've always wondered if many people even spent a second thinking about why. In many cases, men like my dad had more in common with a poor southern white man than he would have with a middle-class northern black man. Yet he and the white man were forcibly segregated for so long that they all thought it was normal. In the 21st century, we live in an age of life coaches and motivational speakers. So the notion of being considered dangerous in the 20th century for daring to wish for a better life for yourself and your kids is contradictory to most of us today. A reasonable conclusion is that the American dream was an idea for some people and not others an entitlement for some, and an intentional hardship for others. That notion has slowly changed over the years, and I'm thankful for that. I'd just like to see some of those last vestiges of racism eradicated sooner rather than later. We're getting there, but there's still work to be done, even if some people prefer not to discuss it. I still hear from people online who think the people who talk about racism are the real racists, and I clearly don't understand that perspective. We learn from each other when we talk to each other. We make amends when we recognize each other's humanity. We build bridges when we work together. And we develop consensus when we compromise. And I love all of that. And those last few sentences are and will be guiding principles for me on this podcast. He continues in the book by saying, I choose to believe that most people want better racial relations. They are just fearful of the unknown steps to get there. For many white people, the desire and the work required to permanently eradicate racism falls somewhere between an annoyance and a hobby. For most black people, the desire and the work required to permanently eradicate racism is akin to a full-time job that you hate, but no, you can't quit because your survival depends on it. The above statements might be labeled as critical race theory, CRT, by an increasing number of people. They'd be wrong. It's critical, it's racial, and it's a fact, not a theory. So when the majority group tells the other to stop discussing racial issues, the minority group knows this isn't one of those things that can be resolved by pretending it doesn't exist. I want to thank Melvin for letting me share that. I, I can't really add anything to that. But, Michael, what about the white supremacist fascists trying to whitewash our history? And the leftist commie liberals that are trying to destroy America and erase our heritage? Well, gee, Josh, I forgot you were there. Yeah, that's a very good question. A couple of good questions. Thank you for asking. Yes, 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 Josh. It always comes down to that, doesn't it? the very loud extremes of thought that the media presents and that so many of us are wrapped up into with our bubbles of existence. But what about the vast majority of people that aren't as heavily involved? Again, that's not to say that there aren't 
apparently quite a few people that are taking advantage of their positions to advance their agenda over knowledge. As I have tried to make clear, I am pretty much removed from academic history. I value the writing and the research that academic historians do, but I do not participate or follow very closely what kinds of things that people are doing when it comes to promoting false history. It just isn't in my zone of familiarity. I find it hard to criticize or comment on something that I don't know about. I respect the efforts of people that are knowledgeable about these issues to call out the activities of people that are misusing their positions to push agendas that are detrimental to real historical research and writing. You know, I'm not bothered by different interpretations. You don't have to dig very deep to find arguments and disagreements about historical issues. That's something the more you know about history and the profession of history, it's just the way, it's the nature of the beast. It's what keeps it going. Actually, it's just the way things have, have been. What I don't like is our current norm of lowering the debate to just meanness and insults. It isn't necessary. If you have a point of view and you, you believe it to be fact, you don't need to do that. As long as you do the work, do the research, dig for actual facts instead of relying on feelings and opinion, you can do away with the bullying and silly debasement of people's character. It's unnecessary, and it sets a bad example for future generations. And if you think you know who I am talking about or that I am singling people on the so-called left or right out, then you are wrong. I know people on both sides of the so-called sides. I've got friends and family members that are hardcore right-wing Republicans. I've got friends that are hardcore progressive liberals. I've got friends that are just flat-out anarchists and libertarians, and I love them all. But when I'm with them, for the most part, what really matters in life, we all agree on. I've witnessed ones that lean more to the left that automatically jump to accusations of white supremacism and accusing people of being in the KK just at being questioned about what they believe. I also know people on the so-called right that likewise automatically go on the attack with accusations of a leftist conspiracy to overthrow our nation and culture and leave us at the mercy of our enemies. And since uh, Josh just uh, asked a question there, that reminds me that I was also contacted by Josh of the Wild West Extravaganza podcast. And we talked about the battles going on concerning the 1836 project hearings. And so he said I could share his thoughts. So I will, and I'll share mine. But since he's he's here, I'm going to have him just go over again and present it to you in his own voice what he approached me with. So, so here's Josh. On one hand, the Texas government is dead set on the all shucks Disney version of Texas history. Remember that movie, The Patriot, with Mel Gibson? Every time it showed the workers on his plantation, the black workers, they were always so happy. Now, granted, that's a fiction movie, but I don't think that's necessarily how it really was back in those days. However, I truly do believe that's what a lot of people want it to have been like. And I actually do like that movie, by the way. Listen, I've heard it a million times growing up. Oh, the slaves really were treated very nicely. They weren't treated all that bad. Many plantation owners were very nice to their slaves. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. And I'm convinced that a lot of people have convinced themselves that that's the truth. And on the other hand, you have those that will claim that all of Texas history is nothing but evil, frothing at the mouth white people whose every waking moment was motivated by systematically annihilating anybody who didn't look like them. And that's not really true either. Both sides seem to have an agenda, to me at least. 
The right refuses to acknowledge history written after 1950 in some weird attempt to own the libs. And the left is looking to prove that everybody from our past is a coward just to spite the right. Why does it have to be one way or the other? Why can't there be an observance of courage and honor while at the same time pointing out the atrocities? And why do we have to distort the facts in order to prop up our modern day politics? Something happened or it didn't happen. That's history, right? We can't will something to happen and we can't will something to have been a certain way if that wasn't the way it was. Now, I agree pretty much with everything Josh just said. In addition to my other planned episodes, for the last few months, for the last year really, I've been working on what was originally intended to be a pretty big episode or a couple of episodes that focus on what Josh and Melvin were talking about, you know, People and their agendas baffle me, to be honest. And the episodes I've been doing are in part pretty much what I told him I was working on way back then. And uh, yeah, I pretty much agree 100% with what Josh said. The constant fighting can be tiring. I believe that there can be a middle ground. And I believe that most people, real people just out in the world are tired of the constant battles. If they have even are aware of the battles going on. And they simply want to learn history and they want their kids to learn history. Why does it always have to be one or the other? Why can't there be an observance of courage and honor while at the same time pointing out atrocities? I think there can and should be exactly that. And that is what we should be doing instead of fighting over this. And to be completely honest, I don't pay much attention to all the history war and culture war battles that are constantly vying for our attention. All these things that we're supposed to be angry and upset about. Maybe I'm wrong, but I have enough things to worry about, especially the last few months. And these kinds of things can be a distraction. It's enough of a distraction that I'm doing this episode to get past it and focus on what's really important to me, which is just doing and sharing history stories. And maybe, yeah, some of you I hear out there, you should have just done that. Maybe I should. But people have asked me what I thought, and I wanted to share it. Quite honestly... My stance is pretty similar to that of Tommy Lee Jones's character in The Fugitive. You know, the one where Harrison Ford's playing a doctor accused of murdering his wife and Jones plays an agent tasked with catching him. That's his job. In a key scene in the movie, Ford is cornered and looks like he isn't going to get away. And he tells the agent Jones is playing. He protests that he has nothing to do with his wife's death. He's innocent. And then Tommy Lee Jones's character issues a classic line. I don't care. His job wasn't to judge or convict Harrison Ford's character. His job was to bring him in to let other people investigate and interrogate and find out the truth. So really, when it comes right down to it, while media stories constantly push stories trying to rile up both sides in the history wars and the culture wars, part of me wants to say, I don't care. I believe that it is more important to focus on doing good historical work and share good stories about history. But if you believe that someone is promoting a wrong version of history, then do the work and rectify it. Show them how they're wrong. But I also know that's not entirely fair of me to say, because I do care. Now, to reiterate, the need for balance is important. As I've mentioned in previously, if you want to focus on the romantic narrative of Texas history, then that's your prerogative. I'm not going to stop you. From my interactions with people accused of doing just this, I understand that they aren't denying the negatives of the past or trying to keep them out of history. Or at least a lot of them aren't. There are people out there that do, that don't want to hear about it, that want to be focused on real Texas history. Read and watch and listen to what you want that makes you happy. 
If you are only focused on the negative, and I know a lot of people are, then go ahead. But don't try to push it on other people either. I believe that there are many people on both sides of the controversy and dissent that are sincere and believe in the stance that they take and the actions they pursue. And both sides I've talked with claim to be on the side of protecting Texas history. There are also people that just want to agitate and revel in causing problems and starting fights. They exist to make others miserable. It's sad, but I think it's an accurate observation. History does require balance. It requires the need to at least try to be objective. By its nature, in order to get close to the truth, we require attention to details of both the good and the bad. There are some things that I remember learning from a Vernon, Texas native, Dr. T. Hunt Tooley. His expertise was on Europe, and I took classes on German, Russian, and World War I with him. Learned a lot. It was fascinating learning from somebody that had such a great mind. And one thing I learned is that the job of a historian is to present the past warts and all, but not just the warts. He stressed that history can't be hagiography, nothing but praise, because that is not how the world works and has worked. And it wasn't always about the negative, though. He also got a little frustrated one day when he asked a question and no one could answer it. We could all regurgitate facts and dates and events. But we couldn't answer a question that was about the dates and facts and events. He stated quite urgently that his job teaching history involves something very important beyond those things. He was not teaching us what to think. He was teaching us how to think, to take the information, interrogate it, ask questions, and interpret. And finally, I want to mention what Dr. Tooley explained about the Hegelian dialectic. And I'm going to mess this up a lot. I know it's been a few years now. It's been a while, but in a nutshell, you have a thesis, an argument or interpretation about a topic to counter this thesis. Someone proposes, or you come up with a counter argument or antithesis from the debate regarding these two by butting heads and going back and forth. Sometimes we progress with a synthesis from which we can proceed with new theses and antithesis. And the process continues. I also imagine it as if there were a pendulum swinging from one side to the other. For a long time, it hung to one side on what we call the traditional narrative. Then with the onset of revisionist history and new social history, it started to swing far away to the other way. New theses and antithesis and synthesis are being made. But from the perspective of the traditionalist, it is swinging hard and staying suspended away. So balance is necessary. Somebody wrote, and said that I believe Brian does honestly love the Texas State Historical Association. He's been involved with it for many, many years. He could have brought people together, but he's enlisted the help of all these culture warriors and right-wing trolls. It's just very disappointing to me, and I think it spells the end of the organization. That's a very grim prediction from uh, Kent Calder. I found that quote by him. The only thing Brian and his critics seem to agree on are the stakes of the battle. How this whole thing goes will determine the future of the way the history of Texas is written, Brian told the Galveston Daily News in May. That's what it's all about. Now, this is a very simplistic explanation. There are many listening to this that are saying that I am out of my depth, and they are probably correct. But I think I'm right that there needs to be olive branches extended from both sides in an attempt to be made at it. If not at reconciliation, 
at least a conversation in which opposing parties both present their concerns. And this is the important part. Both parties actually need to listen and try to understand one another for the betterment of Texas history. As a lot of people say, including a couple of people I really respect, Judge Ken Wise of Wise About Texas and Josh of Wild West Extravaganza, history is complex. You hear it all the time. The modern story of the Alamo illustrates this fact. There are issues concerning bias and historical methods that must be considered always. Now, I'm happy to share my sources if you ever have a question or want suggestions on where to go for learning more. I do not expect anyone to take my word on anything. I want you to try to trust me, though, and then dig deeper yourself. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Part of history is evaluating the facts and drawing conclusions or interpretations. Some people have extreme biases and access to grind. They use history as a weapon for politics and other reasons to shape people's opinions and understanding. Some actually go so far as to make things up, which is heartbreaking and infuriating to me. I respect history too much to do something like that. And I respect everyone that listens to or reads what I share too much to commit that sin. Will I make mistakes? Have I made mistakes? Yes. Will I ever intentionally mislead you? No. This is one of the reasons I did so many episodes on the Battle of Adobe Walls. I wanted to show the many different levels of work and perspective that can be done on a subject. I think I have been pretty straightforward in the past when I have an opinion on something, and I have tried to rely as much as I can rely on good historical research and scholarship and primary sources when I can. I take this quite seriously and follow a really strict code. So with this group of episodes I'm calling episode zero and merging into this Texas thing, I want to be very straightforward and clear as to my methods and point of view. I've had some people insinuate that I'm a liberal. I've had others assert disappointment in me being a conservative shill for the promotion of American exceptionalism. It's either funny or absurd. I don't know which it is, but when it comes to history, I want to be neither. I came across a survey that suggests the supposed crisis of the history wars might not actually be as bad as we are led to believe. Are there people pushing their agendas using history as a tool to get their way or to divide us? Yes, absolutely. Yes, there are. It's constant. But are the majority of Americans actually divided over what they want when it comes to history education? According to this one survey, this group I found, apparently not. As Josh pointed out in this episode, there are people who want to push our history as a source of shame and they use every opportunity they can to bring it up. There are others who are on the opposite end of the spectrum that want to push and focus only on the good. And I get it. There is a lot of good to be focused on. But sometimes when you're talking about the good things that happen, you forget that the people that were doing this good thing, they also were doing this bad thing over here to the side that people back then didn't really care about. But if this data is correct, then the majority of us want almost the same thing, to learn history, the good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly, the happy, the sad, all of it. That's life. That's what life is. It's what life will be. And that's what life has been. You have heard the recurring debates over critical race theory. You have heard about school board meetings that end with arrests because the attendees get so overheated. And you've heard about the bills that attempt to limit what is discussed in classrooms. But what if we aren't really as divided as the news leads us to believe? I found this group called More in Common. 
and they had conducted a year-long interview with thousands of Americans, much more thorough than my little Texas History Lessons survey. They're a nonprofit that researches polarization and acts as an international initiative aimed at building societies and communities that are stronger, more united, and more resilient to the increasing threats of polarization and social division. They work in partnership with a wide range of civil society groups, as well as philanthropy, business, faith, education, media, and government in order to connect people across lines of division. You can see the report by visiting their website, historyperceptiongap.us. Now, after this year-long survey, talking to thousands of people in the United States, they discovered that there was a vast perception gap. Both Democrats and Republicans, quote, grossly overestimate whether members of the opposing party hold extreme views. They claim that the majority of Americans across political affiliations agree on fundamental ideas about our national history and how it should be taught. However, when we focus only on the loudest voices, we fail to hear the most common perspectives. Now, they also share the following. Many Republicans believe most Democrats want to teach a history defined by shameful oppression and white guilt. How many times have you heard that? Many Democrats believe that most Republicans want to focus on the white majority and overlook slavery and racism. How many times have you heard that? How many times have you heard me bring that up just in these episodes? They found out that both impressions were wrong. And in my talking with people on both sides of the so-called gap, I found out that most we actually agree a lot. Americans have a responsibility to learn from our past. 93% of Republicans agree with the statement above. However, Democrats think only 35% of Republicans would agree with that statement. In addition to that, the statistics show that more than twice as many Democrats agree that all students should learn about how the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution advance freedom and equality than Republicans think. 92% versus 45%. Similarly, about twice as many Democrats believe students should not be made to feel guilty or personally responsible for the errors of prior generations than Republicans think, 83% versus 43%. They also have this statement, the proportion of Republicans who agree that Americans have a responsibility to learn from our past is three times more than Democrats perceive it to be, 93% versus 35%. Similarly, more than twice as many Republicans think schools should teach our shared national history, as well as the history of specific groups, such as Black, Hispanic, and Native Americans, than Democrats think Republicans believe. That's a 72% versus 30% gap. 72% of Republicans believe that these things should be taught, whereas Democrats think that only 30% of them believe that. Democrats underestimate Republicans' willingness to recognize failures in American history and the roles of minority groups in making America better. In the report, they also say that views vary more by ideology than by race. The far-left progressive activists and the far-right conservative activists are the problem. The divisions are real. As the report shows, quote, there are genuine areas of substantive disagreement about how to teach American history. These debates are currently framed by segments holding the most extreme views. Despite the fact that these 
two groups comprise only 14% of the United States adult population. This dynamic leads to situations in which communities spend time fighting imagined enemies instead of grappling with the substance where there actually is conflict. We need to focus on where we agree. The survey found that a clear majority of Americans want American history to be taught in ways that include both the inspiring and the shameful. And that allows students to learn from the past without feeling guilty or disempowered by the actions of prior generations. That can be achieved with a balanced approach. 71%, the report says, 71% of Americans believe it is important to teach the history of racism. And 80% of Americans believe it is important for students to learn about the history of Americans whose racial backgrounds differ from their own. 80% of Americans believe this. Across many areas connected to matters of race and racism, the report says, such as teaching the history of slavery, Jim Crow, and segregation, we find strong levels of support across ideological lines. This is big news to me, and I've, I've said this before. I believe there is a big, silent majority of people. They just don't have time to worry about this because we're so many people I know are just trying to survive now. Now, this group has seven recommendations on how to deal with this perception gap and the manipulation we suffer from the extreme edges of opposing ideologies. And here they are. Number one, do not accept debates about teaching history framed in extreme binaries. Instead, assume greater complexity in the beliefs of Americans. Dispel the illusion of imaginary enemies by revealing the multitude of ways that Americans actually agree on how we should teach history. And I encourage you to go to this and read the report and see all the different statistics they found. It's, it actually is encouraging. But we have to get past this constantly us against them. I've said it before and I'm saying it again. When it's we act like it's us against them, it's always us against us and we keep ourselves broken down. Number two, cultivate more shared spaces for people to sensibly discuss and question these topics. Community institutions such as business groups, faith actors, veteran groups, and civil society organizations should work together to create spaces that are intentionally designed to allow for more open and frank conversations and that allow people to ask questions without fear of judgment. In communicating about, this is number three, in communicating about how to teach history, use language that is concrete and accessible. Communication about how to teach history should be clear, specific, and should refrain from jargon. Four, the media should reject the presumption of conflict in the conversation about teaching history and when reporting distinguish between areas of genuine disagreement and areas where Americans agree. Media should dedicate greater coverage to the voices from the exhausted majority who are likely to hold more nuanced views on issues of race, identity, and history. I've shared a lot of quotes from a lot of resources that present everything like this is the end of Texas history. If this side wins or it's couched in the phrase that if the other side wins, it's the end of Texas history. Texas history is not going to end as long as we care about it. I don't know about the future of the Texas State Historical Association, but I hope that if people would speak out and make it clear that we need to do better, maybe something good will come of this. Number five, organizations in the education space should build cross-cutting coalitions to push back against the highly toxic polarization of the history wars and set healthier norms 
for how communities address disagreements. Such networks can help establish and enforce boundaries to behavior and rhetoric that is considered acceptable, such as making clear that the community will not tolerate violence or dehumanizing rhetoric. Number six, support and lead interventions to reduce perception gaps. An October 2022 study by Stanford University's Strengthening Democracy Challenge has indicated that correcting such perceptions can reduce American support for partisan violence. And then number seven, challenge zero-sum thinking. Americans should do more to lift up ways of teaching history, where all groups feel their stories are included and where such learning reinforces a shared narrative of American history. And, you know, it's just my opinion. I think I think a lot of the people involved really are. Their core beliefs are a lot closer to the people on the other side than they really know. Okay, that's enough of me today. I apologize again for these long episodes. If you think these should have been broken down into multiple shorter episodes, I can do that. I know it's a lot of expecting to listen to. I'm exhausted just having gone through it. I recorded both of these last two episodes in one day. That took a lot of time, but I care. And that's why I do it. And uh, you know what? In the end, I hope things work out well. Uh, We'll be seeing very soon. Uh, people in the future, you'll already know the outcome. If you're listening in 2024, you'll know the outcome of this. Maybe it, maybe you didn't even know what happened. You can go back and see what's going on. So yeah, that's going to be it for today. We'll be back soon with another shorter episode and getting back to normal. I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank people for their support. Every single person that I've written to that has responded. Thank you for taking your time to help me understand why it is you stand for what you stand for. And I respect everybody in the, in the either side of this challenge. I actually, I really do. I just don't agree with everything everybody says and stands for. Um, I probably said some things that people on both sides were, well, I can't believe you said that. And I'm like, well, that's what I'm talking about. If you have questions, if you want to send in your thoughts, please do. If you want to share what you think about all the different things I've talked about for almost four hours in the last two episodes, let me know what you think. Where did I go wrong? Thanks to Derek McLennan for the Texas History Lessons theme music, Walking Through History. He's an amazing artist. I love his work. And uh, yeah, that's going to do it. Let's uh, close this thing up. Thanks for listening again. See you soon. Take care of yourself. Take care of one another. Be kind. Adios. Adios.